Um, so I think we'll just start actually is, yeah, everyone's fine with English, mm -hmm. I think. Um, yeah. So just for, for you know, the general structure and theory, Selma will be taking over this one. Mm -hmm. um, we'll both be doing Book of Disappearance next week. And then the week after I'll be doing Mornings in Janine. Iktisam Azim, by the way, is joining us next week for Book, Book of Disappearance, for anyone of you who've read it. So basically, I'm just going to do the moderation so that we won't move so much off topic. And yeah, our structure is, I want to give a little structure on Hassan um, Kandafani's background. Shuruk's going to talk a little bit about the PFLP. And we also have a couple of questions for you guys. So, Ghassan Kanafani was born in Akka in 1936 and had to also, um, well, he was also deported uh, in 1948, becoming a refugee himself. And I think that's very visible from his writings, as well as the one, Men in the Sun, which is a story about, well, three refugees. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and yeah, as you might also know, he was assassinated alongside his niece for his, um, so to speak, engagement with the PFLP. And yeah, but we also wanted to start with the foreword because I don't know if you guys noticed uh, the author of or the translator of the book basically said that Rassan Kelfani doesn't make it very obvious that he uh, he's very political, but rather these all these stories, these tropes to um, speak politically. And from my perspective, generally, I don't think that's true. Yeah, that was just one of the things that I noticed when I read that. And I have the other thing on my laptop. Uh, it was a highlight about Kanafani's um, quote about self-sacrifice how you have to sacrifice yourself for your country and how death is a very huge symbol for that. So yes, our questions would be, do you agree with this forward that Osan Kanafani often tends to be not political in an in a, in indirect way? And yeah. And yeah, in a more broader sense, how obviously political does one's writing have to be? Yeah. Yeah, right for the statement as well. Um, I think what the author meant to say and what she didn't, she, I think, right? He, um, in other paragraphs, was that compared to other Palestinian authors or Palestinian yeah, political figures, he doesn't put the political in the foreground but more in the background. So, I, I try to read it in a really nice way and try to get that out of it. Um, maybe that was that was all there is to it. Um, I think I think everything is sort of political and there's I mean especially when it comes to um, Palestine and I don't know I read some of his other stories they're not they don't put the political in the foreground but um, something like smuggling refugees and borders and so on is already very political. So um, that story is 
yeah, even though it's not maybe put, I mean, he doesn't mention like, oh, there was like a border or something, but clearly they are crossing borders. And um, so I do think that his Men in the Sun is more political in the foreground than his other stories. But yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with the, with the um, introduction or the foreword actually that his aim is not to put the political in the center, but rather show it through like human stories, you know? So. Which is also, I mean, I, for me personally, it's always hard to differentiate if we have, if we have these human stories um, to say that something is only political when it's so obviously political and talking about political concepts. Because I mean, the the way that you choose the narrative, the way that you choose to narrate, also can be very political. Um, but it's also a big question of how how you perceive that. So if that would be, you know, more subtle politics, or if you see that as as a more obvious thing. Because yeah, it was obviously also assassinated for his writing. I mean, because. It was, it was, his writing was seen also as a threat, as, as like a provocation, like you have to move, you have to do something. And we were also talking about it a couple of days ago, like how, how far does cultural resistance um, go, as opposed to like military resistance or warfare. So that would be an interesting topic to start with. Or to end with. <laughs> or to end with and start with, yeah. I think. It also depends how you two feel about, you know, discussing the book first or a bit more the concepts first and then yeah. bring it back to the narrative of the book. Because we're only, I mean, we're only four people now, so I think we can just choose how to go. I think, because we're already in the introduction and uh, I was looking for the quote and I thought it was in, in the first chapter of the short story, but it's actually also an introduction. Uh, the letter to his son, Kanafani, uh, wrote uh, a story about how he listened to his son talking to his mother and asking for Palestinian, then the silence. This is an interesting quote, but even more interesting, and maybe this relates to the story of Abu Abukais, I think it is the first. Um, Do not believe that man grows, no, he's born suddenly, uh, a word in a moment. Um, so this, this identity of him being, his son being Palestinian, um, created another human uh, in his word somehow. And I thought that was really strong. It's also, I think, from the way I read it, the feelings that his son had, for example, about being Palestinian and the, the reaction he had to it and this kind of pain that he felt was also really shown in the characters and the way they carry themselves and the way they go about their lives, which I mean, it's not, it's not very far from reality with, uh, very often. Yeah. Then the other thing, which is also a strong motive in the short story is how he talks about his own death and the question of an in, in, interesting hypo uh, hypothesis that uh, martyrdom or like self-sacrifice, as he puts it, is the greatest commitment to life because you put the life of the masses of your own and 
maybe this is this connects to the end of the short story, but we can talk about it when we when we're there. Yeah. I'll also get back to that after for a bit of, you know, uh, contemporary appearances of Kanafani in 2020 because there there's been a lot of Kanafani videotapes circulating lately with all the protests. So we'll get back to that, yeah. All right, so just moving to the first chapter, which starts with Abu Qais, uh, seeming, seeming the old man, I would say in his 50s, although it doesn't say, and with right now, two kids, right? And yeah, just how he has also been kicked out of his village and for 10 years trying to come back after uh, losing all of his olive trees and now finally deciding to go to Kuwait for a better life in order to support his wife and his newly born baby girl. And yeah, my highlighted parts actually start in, in page 26. Uh, the, the trees exist in your head, Abu Qais, in your tired old head, Abu Qais. And yes, in the last 10 years, you have done nothing but wait. Yeah. I didn't highlight the very same part, but I thought it was very interesting with the perspective he had on waiting um, and this general feeling of waiting for something to happen. Because I think it's a it's a very common thing. I mean, up until this day, which is much further um, along. But I mean, for me personally, and it's more of a personal association. I've heard many people who are, especially young people, who are you know second and third generation, describe their life as just waiting in general. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I always wonder if people have similar experiences with the places they've been um, or different ones. What was the last one? That um, I wonder, you know, with, with the different places that people go to, if they have similar experiences. Mm -hmm. um, because it's also, I mean, it's also a very different thing for, um, for people who are internally displaced or like you know who had to flee and settled inside historic palestine or the ones who are outside and have much higher barriers for example but this this waiting like it really reminds me of like wasting not wasting time but waiting like the occupation wastes your time you know like if it's waiting at a checkpoint or if it's waiting to get your permit and um it's this constant loop of, okay, you're waiting for something to happen, which is out of your control, basically. I just want to wait. Um, I think it um, talks about the significance of his life. Um, and I think this, this is like the accumulation of, of you give up your whole life, more or less. Um, more than more the, at any time in the past, you felt alien. It's significant. Uh, it's on page 25. Um, I guess, like this, the time of waiting, and I went through the people I know uh, I met in Palestine um, and in the diaspora. Everyone is 
waiting. And if you talk to someone, they always say that things will get better. And yeah, most of them even do say that their life doesn't really matter. Just a crazy thought. Hmm. It reminds me of the saying, um, you know, like the Ottomans came and left, the British came and left, the Israelis will come and leave. You know, it's a very common thing that you hear all the time that, you know, eventually we will wait it out, sort of. We will wait this out. So Abu Qais reminds me of that saying. But I think that's also a part from my experience from the people I talk to that can change very drastically with the generations because a lot of people in the younger generation have, you know, the opposite mindset also. And maybe, you know, as a counter statement, just saying like more of a normalizing thing that they say it's been here for so long. It's not going to leave. We have to adapt. We have to deal with it. You know, we have to accept that in a way. Um, so that there is also this kind of disconnect between the, yeah, between the way the generations see this kind of waiting, because it also goes with the very, you know, youthful impatience. You know, you don't want to wait. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also relates a lot to Marwan's story. Just this, him being 16, wanting to already leave his family in order to, to support them. Um, yeah, this type of, the sooner I go, the sooner I can come back in a sense. I think maybe that's also how I saw it, especially, yeah, with the story of his brother who never came back, stopped sending money, stopped supporting the family, in a sense, also this, this loss. Yeah, I was just looking at the book and seeing how it follows up. Wait, the one that wasn't sending money was, was Marwan's older brother, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, not, yeah. So it's not connected to Apokais, right? No. No, no. no. Okay, good. Um, but I think, yeah, it's kind of, you know, kind of a little jump. Yeah. But I think it's also interesting because, I mean, the brother never really says to the rest of the family officially, everyone kind of knows why he stopped sending money. Um, but it's this thing that you don't officially say that you settled somewhere else, that you know, you stepped out of the waiting line sort of to settle somewhere. Wasn't the driver, um, the driver said, oh, I know he, why he didn't stop sending money. He got married, you know, like he sort of created his own life um, and like you said, stepped out of it and yeah, has to provide for his own family. Um, before we move to Marwan, although we already did, I just wanted to add um, this line, like on page 27, um, Abu Kai says, he's an old man, like he can walk, etc. Um, but then in his head, he says to himself, die, who says, that it isn't preferable to your life at the moment. For 10 years, you're hoping to return, etc. Um, it's, it's either waiting or dying. It's always the decision. I feel like the decision you make if you want to get active 
I mean, I talk to people at DSA, the, the, the students' council. If you want to get active and you want to change something, especially from Palestine, especially back then, you must have had accepted to, to die, which is crazy. crazy thought. But I think, I mean, in the end, what we had in the foreword that reflects on Kanafani's own vision of self-sacrifice on, on a lot of people's vision of self-sacrifice is reflected here. Um, and just to get back to, you know, the videos that have been circulating, there is also a lot of, yeah, I mean, this kind of perspective on violence and ongoing violence that the violence, I mean, it's it's a bit out of that kind of context because, I mean, the context is always the revolutionary violence versus oppressive violence. But I think... Um, in the end, the, the view on violence being constantly there doesn't really change because it is constantly there. So you accept at some point that you will be faced with this kind of violence no matter what you do. So you might as well, you know, because the way that Abu Qais also then accepts this narrative of is it preferable to live the way he does? Right. As I see it nowadays, it's still the same decision for people to make. And you see it a lot with not the younger generation who are willing to die, willing to self-sacrifice. Um, but you see a lot of fatigue with all the generation. Uh, once they can't somehow, and I mean, this is the thought of a lot of the, including my father, I guess. Uh, and it says, it's said in the novel as well, that once you're old, you just want to settle down. Um, and for them, it's a lot, and this is what we have seen, I guess, also with, the, with our leadership, who are all old people, uh, or formal leadership, who accept to wait, and wait it out, because they don't have the courage to self-sacrifice anymore. So it is, it is a virtue, but as, as said here, because he's really fighting with himself, it seems to get harder the older you get. I think regarding the leadership especially, I mean, that, that's a very interesting point. Um, because then if the leadership is waiting it out, what exactly are the other ones waiting out on? Like what is going to happen? You kind of see also in the story, you see people being very torn because they know very well the risks, um, but they also don't know what they're waiting for or what anyone will do. And also the kind of atmosphere it creates because for me what was actually, and it's a bit, further in the beginning, actually, with Abu Qais, uh, the conversation that they had with the teacher, who said he was not an imam, like he doesn't know how to do that, but he's just a secular teacher. And the dynamic of the conversation, how people just not exactly jump to conclusions, but have a general, like a general tension amongst each other. So there is no everyone is waiting and waiting and waiting. So there's no patience, you know, to wait for slower answers, but everyone, you know, want to direct answer at some point during this waiting. Yeah. Did any of you have any thoughts about the olive trees? Because I mean, they're always a big symbol. Because <laughs> otherwise we can also just continue to his vision of the Gulf in Kuwait, mm. which is also a very <laughs> specific vision. Yeah. Also, I think it also goes to the this conversation where he got stopped by two foreigners, or he mm -hmm. stopped two foreigners in a car. And that was a bit not so clear for me. 
it wasn't very clear for me either yeah it's this transition because at some point he was almost like dying on the road and then at some point it's just the scene completely switches to him being in the car and why why did also kind of funny make the choice to to include these two perspectives but yeah i mean the olive cheese part like what like what you asked i already like i said i highlighted the the like how the trees exist in in your head and i thought that was also very very relevant to a lot of us like how just the trees or the palestine also exists a lot in our head and we talked about this a lot as well in our last book um book session about how how do you differentiate between this this reality the reality of the palestine that is now and the palestine that only exists in the memories that are passed on to you especially as a refugee emotional part i think very relevant as well yeah so maybe just to summarize especially for you yusuf because everyone else was in the last uh, book discussion of palestine plus 100 um there were a lot of stories so palestine plus 100 is a science fiction like work of science fiction and there were a lot of stories where through virtual reality for example or also sort of controlling like holographs and you know controlling the way people perceive things um they see the homeland even though they're not in it so they have this kind of like controlled vision of a homeland to also keep them peaceful and stable um mm. and it kind of reflects in a lot of these things also the olive trees and this kind of looking back you know because you who knows are your 10 olive trees still like you know connected <laughs> to your house actually if you ever got your house back would you necessarily get back the olive trees um yeah so this vision of like connecting to the past yeah. i think yeah you're right i was always confused by the by the story with the fox and the rat and the horn horn in the car um but maybe maybe he is hinting at just before that it's already said that somehow like he is being lied to by this arab guy who's supposed to help him even though he paid him off and he says i'll save your life for 20 dinars and then there comes a corner in the car which maybe you know symbolizes something from like more the <laughs> out of the arab world there's even more support than in it somehow and then maybe i don't like that it is the blonde woman who doesn't know the difference between a rat and a fox but somehow maybe this is also kind of like the orientalist perspective that they like they come there and they help them but they don't even know the difference even though the man does know the woman doesn't anyway but maybe that's a foreign story because otherwise it doesn't really make sense to bring the foreign into it so maybe it somehow wants to contrast that when the he's lost and he's he was being betrayed by this arab uh guy uh foreign and the car picks him up i think it's also this like why couldn't they just take him to basra <laughs> So it's like I just don't understand how this 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 transition between him being on the abandoned on the edge for suddenly he's with two people in a car and all of a sudden he finds himself abandoned again. Well, he's not a bad guy. 
I mean, that's when Abu al-Khazran finds him, when he goes ah, to the... Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 I thought you meant in this first chapter. No, yeah, yeah, I was convinced yeah. too. Maybe he took him to the next, he said he's taken him to the next town. I don't know where it was. I think he's taking him to the next town and then Bakuba. Yeah, I'll take you to Bakuba. And then they must meet all together in Bakuba. Mm. That's when he gets picked up. No, Bakuba is already in Iraq. So it doesn't really make sense. What page was it on? It's, the book? it's 34. 34. Oh, yeah, Bakuba. Then they just talk in the car, and he's not gonna, he's not gonna kick out. So, where do they? Maybe if we keep on coming down, but Cuba is not right. I think it's generally, you know, it's also, I don't think it's coincidence at all that the journey is so confusing, and you know, because it does leave you kind of dizzy because there are so many places mentioned for people who never or to me it appears you know never really planned to take such a complicated journey but actually just wanted to cross as directly as possible and it kind of puts you a bit into their position because you also start feeling very off because you don't really know where are you right now where are you going to so it kind of puts you into this position of not knowing you know, this insecurity. Yeah. yeah. I'm just looking at 34, 35. It's just the conversation continues. Are you working in an office? No, I'm a yeah. tourist. How the wife was in a, was in Ramli? Mm -hmm. yeah. No, he was in, she was in Zaita and she was, she was a teacher, right? Oh no, she was just, yeah. A little child came up to her. I think the Mukhais was from Ramle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is from Ramle. Which is very interesting. My grandfather was born in Ramle also. Mm. So it's really an interesting point of connection. You mentioned, I mean, the tourist mentions like, oh, you know, Vaita, and like I stood in front of the barbed wire, a little child mm. came up to me and said in English that his house was a few feet away. So, I mean, it's, yeah. You don't really get to know why these tourists are there. Mm. Like, what are, are they like doing NGO work? Are they just trying to look at the look at the place? Like, it seems a bit. It you seems see quite tourists, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe economic tourists. Yeah, and I agree with um, Sharuk that I think. Um, can I find you the different purpose? Like you end up not really following it like in a linear way. Like he comes a lot as well, like in time and he sort of goes back and forth. And you also get a feel of like desperation. Like in a way it attaches you more to the to the characters because you get to know their past. But it also, I mean, for example, in Al Qais, in Abu Qais case, he already attempted to go and he you know, walked alone in the sun and it almost killed him. Like he like shivers and he's clearly like over overheated or whatever. So it, it gives you the sense of um, desperation as well. This jumping and yeah. You know. I think it also kind of like psychologically um, 
it really generally has to do with this thing of feeling out of place because I mean they may be Palestinians but they're not from where they are now so they keep but they also you know they have these super different associations so I mean we'll come back to that with Marwan because Marwan sees everything very differently so he sees like the same way Abu Qais describes this guy as like scorching heat and he feels like his head on, is on fire he's generally like all of his body is on fire and then he has the like the kufiyah to protect his head um but even that is on fire and for marwan like leaving starts out because for abu Qais, leaving starts out as a terrifying thought and then for marwan it starts out as this like amazing thought and he writes to his mother and kind of gets clearance for some things and describes how the sky, for example, is beautiful and it was like, you know, such a sunny day. And it also makes you think that, you know, Marwan was much younger when he came there. Like yeah, he, grew up, he grew up in this environment. He was, he was also displaced, but he started off at a younger age. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, like Marwan has a very romanticized view when he, he, he imagined how he will send back money to his family and make them rich and, you know, you got to pick and, uh, Turn the mud house into a palace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You got a picture of, you know, them sitting in the palace and this is like, he's found a purpose, you know, in, in, in life and he, he romanticizes it and he's not he, clearly not aware like uh, Abu Qais because he had that made an experience, experience as well that how dangerous it is until until later i think this disappointment is also painted with this the guy on the border the fat man on the border with the two of them they both have this shared experience of disappointment and it's almost like yeah the fat man is like the villain of the story because that's like the immediate connection i see because marwan's story also starts starts off with this like he came out he came out of the shop belonging to the fat man who's muggled people. And yeah, just the same type of humiliation they both experienced, only very differently um, with their age difference. And I think another thing that I think mentioned in every story is school. So Abu Qais wants to send his kid to school. That's why like one of the reasons he goes Marwan, he dropped out of school because he wants to provide for his family. And um, even though I think for Marwan, it's especially interesting. Yeah. He wants to be a doctor and he was like mocked by other people for, for wanting to be a doctor, but also scolded for, you know, taking the resources from everyone in a way. Uh, Kenafani keeps mentioning um, the phrase, uh, to be thrown in the frying pan is a synonym or a metaphor to work. So I think we can also really see his criticism of capitalism, like because he himself was, you know, uh, uh, well, I would say maybe Marxist, I don't know, but um, I feel like through that we can see how he criticizes the, the capitalist system that, I mean, exists throughout, you know, also in, in, in Palestinian, or, or yeah, I mean, of course, of course, to throw themselves in the frying pan as well, you know. It says, it said in the introduction, and um, also in the first with Abu Qais, that they said that there are no trees in, in Kuwait, 
and here they say um, if you go then it's money over morals money comes first then comes morals so definitely this is I, I would agree that that's a motive um, that he puts in there very strongly and that yeah. he can be so just as a quick input for the the sympathies you know of Kanafani to his characters to the secular teacher um, and the critique of the exploitation of workers in many different ways and also this illusion that workers are forced into of the you know paradise for work um, the PFLP was generally like secular socialist this like revolutionary socialist but also marxist leninist so that's the you know that's where the red fear comes in yeah <laughs> yeah and it was also the second largest one that formed the plo and i think it's also important like it's funny to see because he does you know he does create his characters according to his political vision should we continue with Marwan? Mm -hmm. I mean, we already started. Yeah. Yeah. I highlighted some some aspects because Marwan is also this vision of the youth, which is mm -hmm. always in like all the revolutionary movements or most of them, youth plays a very central role. Um, and the way the youth is manipulated from different sites but also the way youth, for example, like you know, with different intersections is perceived in this kind of like masculinity that Marwan uh, has internalized of, you know, having to be, I think it's page 36, having to be more than a man and show more than courage or they would laugh at him and cheat him. So this kind of this extreme pressure at 16 years old, um, because of this fear of one's own life that one has to, you know, overperform adulthood and masculinity to deserve to live because otherwise one kind of brought it on himself. I mean, I don't know if, if you saw or perceived that passage similarly or if it was just part of it. I think uh, it's interesting because it's, um, sort of reproduced by um, was it Hassan who like everyone sort of knows someone already in Kuwait whether it's you know the brother or, or, or Marwan it was Hassan um, a friend who lived there for four years and he tells him how to behave and he like gives him all these tips and um, you know like he like this whole masculinity is like reproduced to Hassan who went through this already and um, I mean, also gives him false information, like, you know, it's five GDs or five dinars for, for the smuggler and it's actually a lot more. Um, so, yeah, no, I think I think you're right that Marwan um, incorporates um, or shows this sort of need of being over masculine or over like this very masculine role. I think he's also the oldest son, which is also like you have the most responsibility. Um, yeah, I would agree. And I think like it's interesting that Hassan, like that it's like reproduced through other people. Like it's, yeah. Marwan is the second oldest, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. his brother is there. Ah, true. Yeah. Since his brother's presenting money, he becomes the oldest. 
Yeah, yeah, in a sense, that's true. What is this leads us to the family relations, uh, which in the first chapter already big wrong. We didn't talk about uh, Abu Kais and the relation to the family, um, how his wife is putting a lot of pressure on him, and um, in his case, I guess, uh, the social norms so much pressure on the man to provide. And then in this case, the same his father, uh, or even, uh, yeah. So it's, it's also the story of the patriarchy, the church, uh, society. Um, and I don't know if Nafani had problems with his father, um, but for me and a lot of people I know, this is a very present topic as well. Um, the family norms and uh, at the last event we had with the, uh, our group, uh, Palestine Speaks, uh, talked a lot about uh, trauma, first generation, and etc., um, and how much impact the parents have on their, on their children. Um, so, this is what I read in there as well. And yeah, a lot of family uh, relations that I can relate to. I thought one thing was interesting regarding also, but not only trauma, um, but also communication and and the way people deal with education was the way that Abu Kais and his son interact when the son discovers that he knew something that his father didn't because his father did not have the same kind of education. And this is also, of course, part of this. He creates these characters that fit the narrative of, you know, education for all, because you see this old man trying to discover things that have always been around him, but that he never knew in the same kind of narrative or official narrative. But then you also have this complete block from Abu Qais when his wife tells him to be kinder to his son, because he just discovered he knows like he's a little child and he discovers he knows something that his father doesn't. So obviously he feels he feels some sort of pride about that. Mm. Um, who wouldn't, honestly? <laughs> that was an adorable scene. But it also reminds me a lot of, of the, like, also what Ibtisamazim in the Book of Disappearance says about the, the Nakba generation, mm -hmm. the so-called Nakba generation, how it's so hard for them to show any emotions. And in a sense, she also mentions that in a sentence, she says that, you know, the, the Nakba generation is kind of like desensitized because they just really don't want to talk um, anymore. And I guess interesting to mm. also draw parallels with that because it's, it's very prevalent as well. I mean, up, up until now, you have all of these tough brown dads type of stereotypes and in a sense, they help produce that next generation of, yeah, what is expected out of you as a man. Because, like, when I read Marwan's story, I was like, okay, this is something that happens a lot. It still happens up until now. And I wasn't as surprised with that narrative because, obviously, as the oldest person in the family, you always have this sense of responsibility to provide for them. And maybe sometimes putting your what you want to cite in order to kind of serve the greater good. 
Yeah, I mean, we can continue with Marwan in the meantime, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot about Marwan. There's a lot. I don't know when Asad comes in. Yeah. Because there's also the third. Asad comes in with the negotiations. Okay. Yeah. Yusuf, well, did you have any any particular highlights for Marwan? Um, I mean, um, next to the one, you have to be more than a man, which you highlighted already. Uh, I thought that was really strong. Then the family um, aspect. Um, but then this will be talked about the youth and the decision to do get engaged in the means death in a lot of cases. Um, and this difficulty to make the decision in the first place. Um, I think I just, maybe this was on, on page 37 when he says, uh, it seems he would not be able to penetrate the thick wheel of disappointment that separated him from the distinct feeling which existed uh, somewhere in his mind. So he, this is what, when he talks about the happiness of, of writing the letter, um, but then of his uh, to his mom and how happy he was about that. Um, but then he talks about this thick wheel uh, wheel of disappointment, and this is what I've heard from a lot of. Yeah, young people that are on the threshold of becoming professional, etc., or go another step in education, that there is no much space to really go into. And so there's always this disappointment that you can't really become anything, anyone. I mean, this is what he says in the whole in the page. Um, and this is very, very sad. This is so sad to see. And, with some people I met, you can't even talk anymore because, you know, it's just the, the, the deal is thicker or thinner depending on who you talk to. It's always there somehow. I think the stronger that it gets, uh, this disappointment, if you're young, if you have, you know, if you don't have the typical family, if you have financial issues, if you have a disconnect with the community and you don't have any kind of backing or security and then you have political insecurity the veil you have you know to actually get through and go for new possibilities is very thick i think because i mean with uh, with other things you can imagine working through it but you know if you have so many things to work through that are not in your control actually yeah. I was going to ask, like, is Marwan, is Asad also part of, is Asad is also Marwan's companion, right? Okay, just to check, because I, like, there is no particular chapter on him. That's mm -hmm. why I wondered, like, which part did he show Here. up in? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Marwan brought him. Yeah, that's true. To talking to. Yes. Yeah. We're they, they're staying in the same hotel, so yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah, true. And page thirty-seven. The very shitty hotel, as the driver keeps saying. Yes, the rats hotel. <laughs> okay, and that's the scene from when he gets slapped. I think one thing for me that was interesting because of this contrast of how people see um, the place that they fled from and the way they see Kuwait shows with Marwan, especially with his like this um, 
it's this this vision that he has for Kuwait of he's there in this constant state of waiting and he's found himself like it says he has found himself a stranger and also alone um like in a throng of people like this and he then imagines kind of that the successful men have every single day and every moment of their life in fulfillment and variety and like everything is exciting that it's just kind of like seeking this constant high or excitement uh, yeah and i mean the success we already we already discussed this vision of turning it into a palace like turning his house into a palace i think it's a contrast to abu Qais. Um, Abu Qais's vision or what, been, what he has been told about Kuwait because I think Saad was it he told him like there are no trees in Kuwait like no olive trees like don't go envisioning some sort of paradise um, so again I think it, it relates to a generational um, generational thing because maybe he, he's just experienced more and he knows a bit better um, but yeah I yeah, I think there's a big contrast between Marwan and, and Abu Qais in that, on that level as well. Because we also don't really know what Marwan's brother works as, right? Mm. Because, I mean, we do know that Abu Qais's contact works as, a, I think, a cab driver, wasn't he? And, I mean, a cab driver is definitely not a fancy job. It's not, you know, he, he doesn't go there imagining he will run a bank or something. Yeah, we had... 39, he's describing the weather, he had that one, the brother relationship. Um, did we talk a bit about Marwan's father and how he married someone else and abandoned him? And I guess it reinforces his idea of having to take care, right? Like it's even a stronger sense of having, or, or a stronger sense of responsibility um and sort of to show his dad like he can he's, he's able to do something as well i think yeah i mentioned the family the family relations earlier but then i thought most of us could yeah connect to that anyway and yeah that is it's not yeah it's just a common common topic i guess and this is one that is also not so uh, unique to maybe uh, definitely not to Palestinian uh, families, but the topic that most youth has in them. I think it is. It is definitely not unique, but like for the for situations of colonization and constant oppression, having this this image of at some point you will settle and then because you cannot settle for the political reason you settle in another way you settle by kind of pulling out of this responsibility by pulling out of this you know because he's actually at a stage you know generally perceived too late in life to settle or strive for something better so yeah it's like the easy road I think, I mean, for the next pages, I really don't have anything that really caught my attention. Um, but if any of you have, you know, have points there that you want to discuss.
Because then otherwise I would go to page 46 where they're in this, um, yeah, I mean, in the debate on prices and trying to figure out how they're actually going to get to Kuwait. Mm. And he says, I think, is it Assad? He says, why have you lost your temper? It's a matter of question and answer, and agreement is the brother of patience. And I think this is very, very interesting, given that Kenafani was also more on the revolutionary side, on the secular side of things, and that there is this constant, I mean, in any, in any scene of colonization, in any scene of oppression, the internal fractions and the further fractioning and impatience because you have to have patience for everything else. You have this constant state of waiting. So there is no patience for what we also saw in the beginning with the teacher. There is no patience for answers or for getting to know the motivations. Um, so it's like this really uncommon thing to say that the agreement will come from patience. The agreement will come from, you know, more waiting even. Do you have any, any thoughts on that part or the political fractioning or even further down the way that they proceed? People, I mean, there were people definitely in some aspects that became more radical. But also, they had definitely these these leftist structures of, of discourse, and I mean, I don't know about his personal stance uh, with or against the the TFLP and the special chapter of the PFLP, so the split of the group. Um, but assuming that he wasn't a big fan of the of them splitting up, um, he seems to praise uh, dialogue. That could be an answer. Which is very interesting because I mean the one the one that I mentioned before, and I think I'll bring it up now, mm-hmm. um, the one that was circulating when the Black Lives Matter protests started in the or like not even started, but were already going on for a while, and the repression got so hard. Um, was the one where he said, you know, you can only what was that? I think yeah, it was basically um, like there should, there could be no dialogue. Like, who do we there, talk the, to? Yeah, yeah. Who do you talk to when it's, your uh, opponent has no conscience? Yeah, or, you, know, you can like, only have dialogue if your opponent has a conscience. The United mm-hmm. States has none. Yeah. And he also brought it up on different points. So I think it's very interesting this view on internal dialogue mm. because these are also these four are working like on one thing. They're working to get into Kuwait, so they are working on like a common mini struggle. Yeah. Um. As opposed to, you know, dialogue to the outside. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he did describe this type of dialogue um, that you were mentioning is like this conversation between the sword and the neck. Yeah. 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 So in that sense, I think he was very opposed. So it's interesting to bring up the dialogue perspective here. But it's also then, I mean, I think to that degree, I would agree with him also. Because then, is it really dialogue if you're, you know, having a dialogue for your rights, for your right to live? Because it is a dialogue when you're working with other people who also want the right to live. 
Mm. Um, and you're figuring out how to get there. But then if you're having a dialogue with someone who, you know, keeps refusing you this, it's not really, you know, dialogue on the same levels. It's almost like going to the fat man and trying to True. make an agreement there. In the following pages, I really don't have much highlighted, just a bit about yeah, the story. Yeah? I think you just said me neither. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, right. Abul Khazran's story. Yeah, for me, like how he served in the British Army, later continues of about like how he lost his um, <laughs> genitals, so to speak. It was funny, and yeah, I but think, I think that's, that's kind of I did. I mean, I marked it at the the later point because uh, this is repeating, but I did think that. It is kind of a metaphor um, that you lost your manhood during the like Zionist or Israeli occupation. I think I think this is a topic for a lot of men that lost their honor or whatever, so to speak. He's trying to pick up for it. I don't know. And at least I mean now he's only talking about money anymore. After he lost for him what made him what his identity somehow you could say in a different sense. He he just closed the chapter and now he's just in it for the money. He's still being nice to Palestinians, but only so to make money himself. He's really on his own somehow. But I don't know, because I also saw a lot of like patterns of like self pity as well. Like when he was talking about it, there was tears in his eyes and he started like remembering the past. And so it's almost like, but I, I understood also this frustration, like he lost the land, he lost his manhood, he almost lost everything. So yeah, like what you said at this point, like I, I would understand if nothing, of, none of that mattered anymore, because I think he also does mention Abu Khaizaran. He said like, if, if, we, if it were for a free land, he wouldn't have minded it as much, but he almost lost two things now. I mean, he did. So it makes it a lot harder to accept. So I think it's an interesting, Abu Khazran especially is a very interesting, like he has a very interesting arc on the person he became versus the person he was and how his perspective on this maybe Palestinian liberation um, looks like. Because now he's just a lorry driver smuggling people to get money, smuggling the people, the same people who were affected by the war he personally fought in. So it's, I don't know if he still does it because he cares or if he still does it because, just because of money. I feel like he's very mysterious in that sense. He's for me. I think he mentioned it a couple of times that he's in it just for money. But then I think by the end, you do realize, because I, I, I saw Khaizan just like a bit nicer than the fat old guy. But by the end of it, he actually has a lot of, a lot of empathy and sympathy with, uh, well, with, the, with the Marwan and Asad and Abu Qais. But I also think just to go back to um, his trauma or his, what you said, self-pity, like he gets, re-traumatized every time some people mention marriage 
So for him, I think that's obviously, again, it's a cultural thing. Marriage is a big deal and you have to be stable to marry. You have to have money as a man. And he gets re-traumatized every time people ask him, like, why aren't you married? And I think um, he really, like, sort of cut, cut off with this, you know, traditional way of, of life in the Arab world or in Palestine where you get married and you make money. And so he sort of just lives for himself and for the money because he, you know, he will never be able to marry. Yeah. And he gets mocked for that trauma at the very end, which is exactly the same reason, like, it ended the way it ended, like, the whole story. So it's interesting because we're also mer uh, mentioning marriage before when it came to Abu Qais, when it came to Marwan's brother, and also when it comes to Assad. I think Assad was the one who... Um, who kind of escaped to Kuwait so he wouldn't marry um, his cousin? Was it Assad? One of them was kind of forced into a marriage. Like Shafiqa? Was it Shafiqa? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if it was Marwan or, or Assad actually. I think it was, I don't know, because I know like his uncle kind of made him like marry his daughter in order, in exchange, like he gave him like. 20 dinars and he was like if you, if when you come back you either repay me yeah i remember now it was Assad. Uh, yeah but i mean a similar story was also with uh, with marwan's father who married his the the other wife because mm -hmm. his friend her father told him to because no one else wanted to marry her after she had her leg amputated in the yeah, in the next one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we kind of had a, also a very big yeah. jump from Assad to Abul Khazaran's trauma in the very end. Maybe so, we just finish off. Yeah, so, we yeah, can yeah. do that. Like maybe things in particular you guys highlighted. <coughs> yes, that was the thing I highlighted. Like, because mm -hmm. I was mentioning it before, like he had lost his manhood and his country and damn everything in this bloody world. I think those were the most like kind of interesting parts and especially of course like the end i remember like the first time i i read men of the sun i was like in sixth grade we had an arabic class and it was very um i didn't get it at first because the end actually ended with the memories of all marwan abu qais and Assad, just them remembering, and then you realize they're actually in the tank, and this were these were just like their last moments of, of dying. So I think that was, I think it's very beautifully written. I mean, I read it in Arabic back then, but in both cases, it was very well put. And also, Yara, what you said about just Abu Khazran burying them at the end and kind of forgetting their bodies afterwards, he just, you know throws them in the deserts, and then comes back, buries them. Um, so it's once again just this question of, you know, Abu, Abu al-Khazran's intentions and what he represents. Doesn't he at the end um, throw them on the trash or on the dumpster because he believes that then they will get a burial? Yeah. He's too exhausted or he's not able to bury them. Yes, yes, exactly. Because I remember just remembering like being so disappointed in a sense because even though it has only been one day, you feel like it's been a very long time and they actually managed to build a 
relationship. I mean, yeah, all the four men. Yes. So yeah. Just sort of overall, because it was the first time I read *Man in the Sun*, and I I didn't expect them to die. <laughs> so I was really like, yeah, I almost cried. I was really taken aback. I was like, no. It took me like half an hour to like, and I had to watch some like Jersey Shore to get over it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was quite intense, I think. I think for me, so I have to admit, you know, I, I didn't read the last 15 pages. Um, but for me, the first time I got the ending spoilered by my dad, um, I wasn't surprised at all because what you've seen like what we've seen in recent years with the refugees crossing into trying to cross into europe and you know so many people drowning so many people dying on the way here and you know this entire thing with entire truckloads of bodies being found in austria or wherever because someone just left them there um yeah i wouldn't say you know you definitely don't get used to it ever but it kind of makes you start expecting that something really, really terrible will happen if someone is in this situation. Um, yeah. For me, the introduction that was simple, um, that kind of, uh, that this would happen. But then in the introduction, already, um, or it also, there's a really interesting thought mentioned. Could, could you move your phone? Are you uh, the thought that the, the water tank uh, symbolizes uh, refugee camps and how um, the, yeah, the people on the on the lorry um, have their kind of like the top on the ceiling and they are basically in the hands of someone else and they can't come out and then they, they suffocate at the end. So this is one thought of you interested what you think about this. And then... Um, what, what I would like to know before I have to head off, um, your thoughts on the last, on the question of, of um, Abu, what's his called, Hassan, whatever, the, the driver, um, why didn't they knock on the sides of the tank? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I don't want to have a bias by you, you by, by telling you my thoughts. I thought because for them dying in, um in not an, an honor but not calling for help from the outside uh, it's kind of like this this pride um and they didn't want to be caught by the police and then be in the hands of someone else and being in inhumane situations again i think for me that's the answer I'd be interested what you think um so i just wanted to add something to the forward what you mentioned about the about the tank um because I think it's a it's a really good comparison with the camps, because even if you do get out of the tank, even if you do get out of the camp, on the other hand, you do not get out of this experience. You don't really get, you know, you can't really separate yourself from it. You can't get yourself to separate your like from this existential fear. And that also kind of leads to the same thing of why didn't they knock? Why didn't they try to get out? Because you never see what's outside and you don't, at some point you stop believing that someone will help you actually it doesn't it will probably like not be help and that's you know 
my last words on it. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about that particular sentence because like in every kind of men in the sun, uh, like this is a huge like phrase that's associated with Hassan Kanafani. Why didn't they knock on the sides of the tank? You know, you see it popping up a lot. And I still, I still don't really have an opinion on it. Like I, I thought about it. I was like, what could this symbolize? What could this represent? But maybe, maybe I would also agree with you. Just this whole pride thing, or uh, I'm not sure. Maybe this whole idea of wanting to have things the way they were and refusing to kind of, I don't know, try something else. Maybe that's how I saw it. Yeah, maybe it is pride. Maybe that's like the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, when I read the last thing, the first thing that popped in my head was um, one, he asked himself that to sort of also for his own conscience to sort of put the blame on them a bit. Um, and then I thought about it like also out of fear maybe, like you don't know what will happen when if you start knocking, you get caught. Um, but I, I like Yusuf's lock on it on like not wanting to get, uh, you know, yeah, I guess pride, yeah. I mean, the other the other idea is, I mean, I think Shuru kind of put, uh, put the thought into my head. Um, if you take the refugee camp uh, parallelism, <laughs> um, an answer could also be because they just couldn't, um, because it's mentioned earlier that it's just incredibly hot. It's like hell. Um, they can barely move um, getting out. And so maybe they just could not even maybe it's just too suffocating and it's just really they have the strength to even knock uh to even give a sign that they are dying um i think this would be a very uh political political uh, uh, interpretation as well and i think this can be very similarly read to a refugee camp also because you're so focused on just living on you know just making it that sending signs to the outside requires so much energy that you do not have left, like you cannot put this energy in anymore. Yeah. So I think the next book is maybe a little less depressing, but also on the other hand, not really, but it's definitely worth it. And if Tissam is joining us, um, yeah. From my side, thank you, thank you so much for offering uh, this, um, yeah, to read it together. Um, yeah, I was, it was. I heard about, a lot about it and about some kind of funny as well. I was just in Beirut, so at the AUB even, and so it's really good to have read something uh, of him and have the motivation to share it with you. It was amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining. <laughs> yeah, yeah I have Always a pleasure. <laughs> so we'll keep you updated. We have for August. We have two more sessions on mornings in Janine and Book of Disappearance. Um. And then we kind of started planning out the rest of the year, sort of. So mm -hmm. there is more collaborations coming and everything. Mm -hmm. But yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.